sermon text this morning is in Matthew chapter 27. We will go from verse 45 through 54. 45 to 54. Repeating a little bit of what we covered last week and then continuing forward. Matthew 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom, and the earth shook. And the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, there are truths here that we know you have called us together to mine for. So help us, Lord, in this. Every word that you have revealed to us here in Scripture, we know has is come from the Holy Spirit through Matthew. You have preserved it, Lord, in your providence through the ages so that we would today sit and read it together so that we might understand what Christ has done for us. And so, Lord, when we think about this, this great providence of yours, to preserve this for us for today, we know that you will give us understanding. And so we anticipate your Spirit's help. In Christ's name, amen. Well, last week in, in verses um, 45 and 46, we saw that what Matthew's doing is interpreting Jesus' death for us through the lens of God's promises. And when I say God's promises, I mean the Old Testament. Right? So God had promised in the law, in the prophets, the Old Testament, that the restoration of his people would be a greater, more powerful act of mercy than when he first brought his people out of Egypt. And so far we've seen that to be true, and we're going to see more of that this week as we continue studying. Matthew shows us that in the death of Jesus, the Lord is faithful to fulfill his promises 
and to save his people. The Lord is faithful to fulfill his promises and to save his people. Now to get to that conclusion, you've probably picked up on this. We have to read Matthew differently than we would read, say, Paul's letters. So when you read Romans or Ephesians or Galatians, you get propositional statements. A is true. B is true. C is true. Therefore, D is true. Just as an example, let's look at Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness led to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. It's really clean, isn't it? Really tidy. We we read that, we get a very direct description of what happened for us on the cross. Jesus obeyed the Father by dying on the cross, and this leads to justification for us. Forgiveness of sins. In, In Ephesians Paul says at the cross, the dividing wall of hostility was brought down. The Gentiles were included into God's plan of salvation. In Colossians, and we saw this a little bit last week, Christ nailed the sinfulness of our flesh to the cross. Propositional statements, really easy to understand. Now compare that to Matthew. In order to teach us that Jesus took upon himself The condemnation of Israel, he does it by making this observation. And there was darkness over the whole land from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. That's not as straightforward, is it? To understand the the implications of the darkness at noon, we have to know Amos. And we have to know what was happening in the Passover and Exodus in order to understand Amos. And in order to understand all that, we have to know the blessings and cursings of God's covenant with Israel from Deuteronomy. It's layer on top of layer on top of layer just to understand that Christ died for our sins from Matthew. We have a new mic this week, so you're going to have to bear with us a little bit. So, so, so to, you have Paul's example. For Matthew... for Matthew to show us that this fulfillment, these promises of of God being fulfilled, he gives us these these glimpses of what's happening in creation. So there was darkness over the land. For Matthew to say, as we saw last week, that the death of Jesus accomplished the reconciliation of the nations to God, well, he didn't just say that outright for us, did he? He embedded that reality, that truth, in Jesus' saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that took us to Psalm 22. And we saw how Christ was fulfilling Psalm 22. And through that, we see the nations being reconciled back to God. When we read Matthew, we need to understand that it it, it is chock full of massive theological truths. But those truths are not as easy to gather together as they are in Paul. Instead, these realities, these theological truths that that Matthew has for us, they're tied up in real-time fulfillment of God's promises. And the fulfillment is revealed in all these myriad 
Old Testament references that Matthew is continually giving us. So when you study Romans or Ephesians or Colossians, what's happening in those letters is Paul is taking all of the promise and fulfillment realities that are pictured in the Gospels, and he's simplifying it into declarative statements. Statements like, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. The message is the same, right? It's the same message that Matthew's communicating for us. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. What Paul comes right out and says, he does it that way because of the genre in which he's writing. It's a letter. What you and I are meant to do when, when we read Matthew, to understand Matthew, we have to read it the way that it was meant to be read. We are, we are to look for fulfillment as we read Matthew, as we study the text. And there is a lot of fulfillment happening here, especially as we get close to the cross, or here we are on the cross. There's a lot of fulfillment happening here. God is faithful to keep his promises, so we should expect to see him fulfilling his promises in Christ on the cross. All right, so, so as we see this fulfillment happening on the cross this morning, I, I want you to do two things, okay? First of all, I want you to thank the Lord for his word. As I have read and studied Matthew over these past few years, my confidence in the perfection and the absolute unity of God's word has just grown tenfold. And I hope that's true for you. And as you see God fulfilling his promises in scripture and you see the unity of God's word, I hope that fills you with thankfulness for the scriptures that God has passed down to us. Secondly, though, I hope that you will praise God for his faithfulness. God does what he says he will do. And it is always better than we expect. Amen? So let's look for that as we study the scriptures this morning. Well, right after verse 46, when Jesus mediates that Psalm 22, verse 1, cry to God, someone in the crowd misinterprets him to be calling for Elijah. Someone else is overcome by Jesus' need for help. And he gets him something to drink. And in this, what really to us seems like a, just a meaningless gesture of, of compassion, somebody providing a drink to a thirsty, dying man, there is a lot of fulfillment happening. One of the reasons why I did not include this passage with last week's sermon was because I knew that there was something here that I was missing. So all four Gospels see what happens with this sour wine that is given to Jesus, and they record it for us as being extremely important. If you take the time to read Matthew's account and Mark's and Luke's and John's accounts, you'll find that they don't all exactly line up. Some include some details. Others include other details about the crucifixion. Each one sort of zeroes in on, on different aspects of what's going on and who's there. 
But all four Gospels include the fact that Jesus was given this sour wine to drink. In fact, when you read John's Gospel, you even get the idea from John that if Jesus had not been given this sour wine to drink, then Scripture would not have been fulfilled. Look at, let me just show you John 19, verses 28 and 30. I'll put it on the screen for you. Just, just think about that in context of the way that John writes this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, and then John says in parentheses, to fulfill the scripture, Jesus said, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. See what he mean? It's almost like it could not be finished until Jesus received the sour wine. Scripture could not be fulfilled until he drank this, this, this vinegar. So what's going on here? What, what is so important about what's happening with this sour wine? Well, we've already seen this psalm that is being referenced here. We've seen it hinted at a few times already as we have worked our way to the cross and onto the cross. This is a reference to Psalm 69. And we're going to be in Psalm 69 for a couple minutes back and forth with Matthew. If you'd like to turn there, you can. But in Psalm 69, verse 21, the psalmist says, They gave me poison for food. Now, now Matthew has referenced this already when he said they gave him wine mixed with gall to drink. Remember, he didn't drink it. In, in one of the translations, one of the older translations of Psalm 69, 21, it says, They gave me gall. All right, so, so Matthew has already referenced this verse 21 before. And then in the second part of verse 21, it says, And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Clearly, this is what's being referenced. There's our sour wine. This is the passage that all the gospel writers want us to see. So why is this so important? Well, it's important because of what this psalm represents. Something that, that I rarely pay attention to and this is probably true for you as well, we, we rarely pay attention to the titles of each of the psalms. That's partly because our psalms have numbers in front of them. So we, we number our, our psalms, and so for us, the number is kind of the title. If I say Psalm 119, you kind of know what Psalm 119 is about. But that, that's a recent invention in, in redemptive history. The Jews... Uh, in the day that, days that Jesus walked the earth and the, the early church, they relied on the Psalms' titles. Sometimes they relied on the first lines of the Psalms because for them, the Psalms were not yet numbered. And in the Greek Old Testament, the title for Psalm 69 is this, unto the end, on behalf of those that shall be changed. Pretty fascinating. Look at, just slow down on that. Unto the end, on behalf of those that shall be changed. 
These titles were so important to the understanding of the Psalms that they were, they were often included as a part of the subject of preaching, subject of the sermons. So as an example, when, when St. Augustine, way back in the, in the 4th century, when he preached on Psalm 69, the first two points of his sermon were all about the title of this psalm. So I want you to put yourself in the place of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you have a psalm that you're very, very familiar with, remember the psalms in many cases were memorized. In fact, just a little tidbit, trivia for you, to be a deacon in the early church, you had to memorize all the psalms, all the way through. All right? So, so just put yourself in the place of someone who knows the psalms as well as a Southern Baptist deacon knows the old Baptist hymnals. Okay? So one of those psalms has this mysterious title that we're seeing. Unto the end, on behalf of, of those that shall be changed. And, and so you knew, because you know the psalms, you know that this has to do with the end of something. Right? You're not sure exactly what, but it has to do with the end of something. Maybe it's the end of someone's life. Maybe it's the end of an era. You're not completely sure. And you also know that there's a connection between that title unto the end and those who will be changed. There, there's an expectation built into just the title of the psalm, isn't there? The end is coming. A change is coming. People would then be looking for this psalm to be fulfilled. It is an anticipatory psalm. Now add to that the content of the psalm. That's really important too, isn't it? Look at the end of Psalm 69. Because in the end of this psalm, it has embedded into it this future hope. For God will, that's future, isn't it? For God will save Zion, and he will build up the cities of Judah, and people shall, this all future, shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Now, just for some context, this was written by David. Right? So we also know at the beginning of the psalm, it usually has the author's name. This was written by David. And in David's day, God's people already possessed Zion. They already dwelled in the land. All right, so you have this already reality that's taking place in history, and yet the psalmist is looking forward to a future hope. Some, th th those last two verses are saying that in the future, there will be a greater saving work of God, a greater dwelling of God with us, a greater inheritance and possession of the land than what we currently know, even though we're already in the land. Okay? So, so then the expectation is that future hope is going to be somehow connected with the rest of Psalm 69. All the stuff that happens before verse 35. You still with me? All right, so that's just why I told you you need to have Psalm open, Psalm 69 open now. So, so what are the first 34 verses of Psalm 69 about? 
if the title is, it, is, it, is about the end and those who will be changed, and the, and the end, in that last two verses, we have a future hope. Well, oddly, as you read Psalm 69, it seems actually kind of disconnected from those two subjects. The rest of Psalm 69 is about the suffering and the death of the Davidic king and his trust that the Lord will deliver him. So look at Psalm 69, verses 1 and 2. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there's no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. The writer here believes he's dying. This is, this is descent into the dead language. And so we need to read the rest of the psalm with that in mind. Okay. So what we're going to see as, as we continue in the psalm is a description of, of pending death for this writer and the circumstances around this person's death alongside this person's trust that God will deliver them. This is a, it's a prayer in many ways, a prayer for God's deliverance and, and a declaration that God will surely do it. Okay, so look at Psalm 69, verse 3. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. He knows his death is imminent. He's been crying out, and now he's thirsty. Remember what John said? Jesus said, I thirst in order for the scriptures to be fulfilled. So he's thirsty. His throat is parched. We're starting to see, oh, this is probably Jesus, right? The, the reincarnate son, or the incarnate son, the pre-incarnate son, is the one riding here through, through, through David, it certainly describes what Jesus is going through on the cross, doesn't it? It even parallels the language that Matthew's been using. Jesus cried out with a loud voice in verse 46, and then he cries out with a loud voice again in verse 50. We're seeing that in, in Psalm 69.3, crying out in thirst and, and, and nearness to death. Eyes are growing dim. I'm about to die. Psalm 69, verse 4, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. Now Matthew's already showed us that the religious leaders hate Jesus. The crowds hate Jesus. The soldiers hate Jesus. Even the men dying on the crosses beside Jesus all hate him. His enemies are numerous, more than the hairs on his head. We also know that the the accusations against Jesus are fabrications, aren't they? They're lies. More in fulfillment of this psalm. Look at verse 7. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. Jesus, remember, Jesus is, is dying in obedience to the Father. He's doing the Father's will. We've seen that again and again, haven't we? This is echoed again in verse 26 of this psalm. For they persecute him whom you have struck down. Think of Isaiah 53. He was stricken and afflicted by God. 
They persecute him who you, Lord, have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. The psalmist is recognizing that God has struck him down, and yet the people are guilty for their persecuting of him. So it's very similar to what you see Peter preaching on Pentecost. This all happens in accordance with God's plan, and yet the people who killed him are guilty. This is fulfilled in Jesus, isn't it? Look at verse 9 of Psalm 69. For zeal for your house has consumed me. We saw that being fulfilled when, when Jesus came into Jerusalem and went into the temple and he flipped over the tables. Zeal for your house has consumed me. And then the same people who have shown themselves to be in defiance of God are the guys who hate Jesus the most. These, these false teachers, the, the religious leaders, the reproachers of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Lord, they hate you, and now they hate me. So there's tons of fulfillment here, isn't there? I hope you're seeing the connections between the death of Jesus and Psalm 69. But that's not all that's happening. Despite his death coming at the hands of these wicked men and, and at the same time knowing that his death is God's will, this Messiah King from Psalm 69 trusts the Lord. Look at verses 13 and 14. But as for me, so despite everything that's happening to me right now, as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. And look what he says. At, at, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. So even, even in the process of dying, even in knowing that his death is the Lord's will, even knowing that he is descending, he's going to die, he's descending into the depths of Sheol, the psalmist, Messiah, trusts that the Lord will save him when? At an acceptable time. So for the gospel writers to point to Jesus as the person enduring these tortures of Psalm 69, they're saying he is the one, Jesus is the one who trusts the Lord all the way to the end. All the way to the end. And then Matthew proves that's Jesus. Jesus trusted the Lord all the way to the end with the way that he tells us about his death. Look at verse 50 of Matthew 27. So back in Matthew, verse 50, and Jesus cried out again. There's, there's more of that crying out, Psalm 69 language. Messiah is crying out. But then look what happens. He cried out again and yielded up his spirit. That's not an accident. That wording is not an accident. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus was in control what was happening to him all the way to the end. All the way to the end. All the way to and through his death. He yielded his spirit. It's an active, active voice. This is an active verb. Jesus yielded. It's not passive. He wasn't martyred. He gave his life. He yielded his spirit. He said it would be this way. Back in Matthew 20, 
when he was telling his disciples of his death that was to come, he said of himself, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gave his life. In John, Jesus says this, John 10, 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. Now I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. More active verbs, aren't they? Jesus lays down his life. We've talked about this some as we've worked our way to the cross, but I want to point out again, this is how the Bible consistently describes Jesus' death. He gave it for us. He laid down his life. He yielded it. His life was not taken. And the reason why this is a point, the reason why this is so important is because it shows us just how far Jesus' obedience went. He was obedient all the way to the point of death. Sounds like Philippians, doesn't it? Remember that? All the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. For Jesus to have been ambushed and murdered in some dark alley, that would not have required his obedience. It doesn't require faith. To have been pushed off of a cliff, or stabbed in the back that doesn't require obedience. But what the Gospels want us to see is Jesus' obedience, his faith, his fulfillment of Psalm 22, his fulfillment of Psalm 69. To, to know that suffering is the Father's will, and so to willingly endure suffering. And to know that death is the Father's will, and, and by his own conscious volition to yield his spirit and die, those are acts of obedience. That's what's being pictured here for us. Because that's how Messiah in Psalm 69 trusted the Lord. He trusted his salvation would come at what the Lord deemed the appropriate time. So even if that time was after his death, Jesus trusted all the way to the end of his life, and so Jesus fulfilled what was promised of Messiah. You see the fulfillment? You see why the sour wine is important? Because it gets us to Psalm 69. You see why he yielded his spirit is important? Because it shows us Jesus fulfills those promises. Everything Jesus did, he did in perfect Obedience to the Father. He never relented. He, he never gave into the temptation to avoid suffering. The writer to the Hebrews takes this truth, spends 12 chapters proving it for us, and then takes this truth for us Christians as an illustration. Or really shows Jesus to be the ideal of obedience. This, this is the obedience that we are to strive for. So if you're a disciple of Christ, if you're following Christ, this is the path that you're following. Christ died for us so that we could be freed from bondage to sin so that we could 
walk in obedience to the Lord. And what does that look like? It looks like what it looked like in Christ's life. Obedience all the way to the point of death. And so when you read Hebrews 12, there's this, this hard teaching. When you feel weak, and you, you feel like your fight against temptation is at its end, and the temptation is too great, and you can't fight anymore, look at what the apostle tells us in Hebrews 12. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Christ endured temptation. Consider him so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He's saying if you aren't on a cross yet, if you aren't dying yet, then you can endure this temptation, whatever it is. The desire that you, that you, that you would have to, to lie, to make yourself look better, the apostle saying, that temptation, that is nowhere near the temptation that Christ felt to remove himself from the cross. You aren't shedding blood yet. By the power of the Spirit, you can tell the truth. You can use self-control by the Spirit's power. You can turn off the phone that you're addicted to. You, you don't have to say that cruel thing that's in your brain. You can go for a walk instead of looking at pornography. You can stop drinking before you get drunk. You're not dying. Christ died so that you could endure that temptation. And, and, and I say that not as a guilt trip, because Hebrews doesn't say that as a guilt trip. It's not a guilt trip. It's not like, oh, he suffered for you. Look what you're doing to him. No, we don't worship Christ because we feel sorry for Christ. We've seen that. Or because we feel guilty. We worship him because of who he is, because of what he's accomplished. This is a matter of what Christ has accomplished. Did Jesus accomplish our deliverance from sin on the cross, or did he not? When you knowingly, willingly give into temptation, what you're saying by your actions is he did not accomplish your freedom from sin. He did not accomplish your deliverance. For a Christian to give into temptation is to deny the power of the cross. It's to deny the work of Christ. But before we go too far into Hebrews 12, which is a temptation for me, let's look more to see what is accomplished at the cross. That's the point, Matthew 27, so let's look. We're only a few verses in. In, in, verse, 40, in verse 51, Matthew says, when Jesus yielded up his spirit, the curtain, let's look at this now, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What's happening here? Well, there are two Curtains in the temple. One curtain divided the, the courtyard from the holy place where the priests went. And the other curtain, further in, divided the holy place from the most holy place where the high priest went once a year to make atonement for sins. Now, none of the gospel, all the gospel writers tell us that the curtain was torn. None of them tell us which of those two curtains it was. 
But the book of Hebrews, we were just in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews implies that this was the inner curtain, the one between the holy place and the most holy place. That's uh, the traditional understanding. It's the evangelical understanding of this passage. It's the orthodox understanding. It's the Catholic understanding. This is what we understand to have happened. But you could make an argument for the other one. Hebrews says, and I'm going to go with Hebrews. Hebrews says that when Jesus proved himself to be the promised high priest, the Messiah, who makes atonement for sins, he went into not the earthly temple, but the heavenly temple, that the earthly temple was a shadow of. And as the more perfect priest, as we sang the, the true and better, right? As the more perfect priest, he went in to that most holy place, into the very presence of God to make atonement for sins once for all. Let me just show you the way that the, the writer to the Hebrews says this. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy places every year with blood not his own. For, when, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So the idea is that Christ has entered into that most holy place, once for all. So there no longer needs to be a division. This, this tearing of, of the curtain is a sign from God. Remember, it was from top to bottom. This is, this is a supernatural event. No man tore this from top to bottom. The tearing of the curtain symbolized, at the very least, the end of the usefulness of the earthly temple. If Christ has gone in once for all to make atonement for sins once for all, then that earthly temple just doesn't serve a purpose anymore, does it? And so the dividing curtain has been torn to show that this temple is of no use anymore. This is the end of the era, as Hebrews says, the end of the temple era. There is no dividing curtain in the temple anymore. This is the end. Now think again about that title of Psalm 69. Unto the end. To those that will be changed. But the tearing of this inner curtain means more than just the end of the temple. Not only is sin atoned for once for all, so the temple serves no purpose, but the dividing curtain between the dwelling place of God, the most holy place, and the place where people are, that dividing curtain is gone. That division has been opened up. And that was an old, old division. The curtain that was torn, if it was the inner curtain, it had embroidered into it cherubim. Those cherubim on that inner curtain that separated man from God's dwelling place was to represent to all those ancient cherubim with flaming swords that had been placed outside of the Garden of Eden, the dwelling place of God. That division, that division guarded by those heavenly cherubim, those heavenly beings, that division's come to an end. 
The separation between God and man is coming to an end. The exile of humanity away from the dwelling place of God is coming to an end. All of the prophecies of the restoration and the coming kingdom are being fulfilled in Christ. And it all begins at the cross. That's why the curtain was torn from top to bottom. And then there's more. Matthew says, and then the earth shook and the rocks were split. Now both of these events are events that throughout the Bible... The prophets used to show us that God is at work. Okay, so if the earth is shaking in the Old Testament, God is working. There's a supernatural event occurring. If the rocks are splitting open, God is intervening into history. These are signs that are well known to God's people. So in general, these are signs that God is up to something. Something happened at the cross. But in particular... These signs are spoken of frequently as being related to the Exodus. And we see this in the Psalms. Here we go again in the Psalms. In Psalm 77, Asaph, it's one of the prophets in the Psalms, Asaph is recounting the mighty works of God. He's singing about the mighty works of God. And since this is before the restoration, remember, God is most known for his work in redeeming his people from Egypt. So listen to the way that Asaph describes that redemption, that exodus. Psalm 77, verse 14. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Then he keeps going in verse 18. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was made through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Yet the earth trembled and shook when God was redeeming his people. Now think back to what we saw in Jeremiah and Isaiah last week. Both of those prophets said that when God, when God brought about the restoration, that 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 future hope, when God was going to bring about the restoration, the end of the exile, it would be greater than when he delivered his people from Egypt. And here is the earth shaking, as it did in the Exodus, and it is as if the earth is proclaiming for everyone who will hear it, God is at work again. God is fulfilling his promises again. God is redeeming his people again. He's reconciling his people to himself. And then the rocks split, and we see more. Asaph, the very same writer, in the very next psalm, says of the rocks splitting, Psalm 78, he divided the sea and let them pass through it, and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud, and all night with a fiery light, he split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Paul says that rock was Christ. So here again, Matthew is echoing God's work in the Exodus. And he's saying that's happening again. 
because of the cross. Something big is happening here. Rocks are splitting open again. God is redeeming his people again, but in a new way, in a better way, a more permanent salvation is happening. Well, after the earth shook and the rocks split, things got weird. <laughs> Look at the next passage, the moment you've all been waiting for. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. <laughs> now there are all, Dustin has been asking me about this passage since like uh, chapter 10 or something. <laughs> oh, wait till you get to the tomb. Okay, here we are. Now there are all sorts of weird theories about what's happening here. Lots of weird theories. Some people say that Matthew isn't talking about the day when Jesus died and rose, but he's talking about the future resurrection, when Jesus returns. And that's kind of weird, because that's not what Matthew says. Not to mention, Matthew hasn't projected forward into the future resurrection yet. The only time he's talked about the future was back in Matthew 24. And in Matthew 24, he said, I'm talking about the future. Right? So it's really explicit when he's talking about the future. This is not that. Other people say that because only Matthew includes this in his gospel, well, it must not have happened. It could not have happened. It's only in one gospel. Well, Lazarus is only raised in John's gospel. And the thief on the cross who believes in Jesus is only mentioned in Luke's gospel. And the boy who runs away naked when Jesus is arrested only shows up in Mark's gospel. We can't just write off an event because, uh, because of its singularity, because it only happened in one gospel, even if it is unusually miraculous. And this is unusually miraculous. Some say, I told you there's lots of theories. Some say this event was written in Matthew long after the original manuscript was written. But there's no evidence of that. All of our oldest manuscripts consistently include this miracle. Finally, some say that this was a hymn that the church sang in the, in, in the olden days. And somehow that hymn found its way into the gospel. Again, there's no evidence of this. One of the commentaries, just to show you how much theologians wrestle with this, one of the commentaries I read even said, it'd be really neat if this actually happened. And by then I was annoyed. <laughs> the simplest, most straightforward way to understand this passage is to just read it plainly. As surely as the earth shook, as surely as the rocks split, the tombs were opened and the saints were raised up. So if, there's, if, you, if you're curious about what I believe, I 100% believe that what Matthew is describing actually happened at least on a small scale. He doesn't say how many bodies rose up. He just says many bodies of the saints rose and appeared to many. Many could be 10 people. It could be 20 people. It could be 100 people. I'm okay with that. But what we do need to see is this is not a massive worldwide resurrection. It's very clear that that's not the case. It's not meant to be that. That day is coming. We look forward to that day. But this event is a sign for us. Just like everything else that we've read, 
around Christ's crucifixion is a sign. This is also a sign, and it's a sign for us that something momentous is occurring. And by something momentous occurring, I mean Scripture's being fulfilled. So when we read about this, we read this passage. Again, we've got to read Matthew for the way that Matthew's meant to be read. We cannot expect all of our questions to be answered. And have be a lot of questions about this, don't we? Right? Like, who are these people that are raised up? And what are their bodies? Are they, are they giving glorified bodies? Or are they like Lazarus's body? Are they going to die again? Or do they ascend into heaven? We don't know. Are, are these people martyrs? Are they the prophets? How is it that when they went into town, people recognized that they had previously been dead? Did they know them? And isn't Jesus' resurrection supposed to be the first fruits of those who will be raised? Where does this event fit into that equation? I have lots of questions, and I have lots more questions, and I'm sure that you have more questions, but we're not going to answer any of those because Matthew doesn't answer any of those. Matthew's not to, meant to be read as a, as a fully detailed journalistic narrative. It's meant to be read as a historically true fulfillment account. Okay, Historically true, these things happen to show fulfillment. Matthew's goal, what he wants us to, to see here, he wants us to see that scriptures are being fulfilled in Christ's death. That's the central focus of all of these events. And by seeing what is being fulfilled, we are to then better understand what is accomplished through Christ's death. Well, you probably guessed what scripture I'm going to say is being fulfilled here because we read it earlier, Ezekiel chapter 37. Now, Ezekiel 37 comes in the context of a promise. In Ezekiel 36, the chapter before, God is promising Ezekiel that he's going to bring his people out of exile. There it is again. He's going to bring them back to the land. He's going to pour out his spirit on them. He's going to cause them to walk in obedience to him. Look what he says in verse 33. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places to be built. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That, that, that inhabiting of the cities, that was that promise at the end of Psalm 69, wasn't it? Where God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And in the people shall dwell there and possess it. So that day is coming when the sins of Israel are also cleansed. That's when the restoration begins, okay? So here it is again. God is promising Ezekiel this great new restoration is coming. It's going to come with forgiveness of sins. And then immediately following those promises in chapter 36, we get chapter 37. And chapter 37 is a vision it's a picture of the fulfillment of chapter 36. God takes Ezekiel and the spirit to this dusty, dry valley, and there's all these bones strewn across the valley, and they're so dry that they're all separated from one another. They've been, a, they've been there a long, 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 long time to get to this point of dryness and desolation. And remember the fact that, that these bones are even out there and not buried is a sign that some curse has taken place. The bodies of Israelites were supposed to be buried. 
Only the enemies of God, only those cursed, only those estranged from God were to be left out in the open like this. Well, Ezekiel goes on and tells us more about these bones. These dry bones represent the spiritual deadness of God's people. This is a picture of their exile, their spiritual exile. It says in verse 11, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Cut off from their inheritance. They're separated from God. They're dead apart from the Lord. Look what God says will happen. Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. Look, you, you shall pay careful attention. You shall know when that happens, when the graves are opened and the bodies come out, then you will know I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. So the Lord is telling Ezekiel that raising his people up from the graves will be a sign that the restoration is coming. It has begun. And what else has happened? The iniquities, the sins of God's people have been forgiven. So when the people are raised from their graves, then God, we will know, we will know that God has forgiven his people and they'll know that he is their God. And as you keep going, you see more of what's expected. God says he's going to bring his people back into the land. And then look, verses 23 and 24. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they will be my people and I will be their God, my servant, David, Messiah, Messiah, shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd and they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. That sounds like what Jesus says happens at the Great Commission. Teach them to obey my statutes. Teach them to obey my commands. That's for a few weeks. The point, though, is that these saints of Israel being raised up, what we see happening here, this is a sign that God is about to establish his kingdom under the reign of Messiah King. And so Matthew is showing, to show us this fulfillment, he's using the same language that Ezekiel says. He's using Ezekiel's words. Ezekiel says, I will open up your graves and raise you from your graves. And Matthew says, in the same order, and the tombs were opened and the bodies were raised. These these coming out of their tombs as a result of Christ's death is a sign of what has been accomplished at Christ's death. The, The sins of God's people have been cleansed. The reconciliation of God's people back to him has begun. Only there's a twist. getting close to the end here. There's something different here on Good Friday. Matthew adds something. Now the expectation was that when this sign happens, God's people will know he is the Lord. Right? We sell that over and over and over again. Yahweh will be revealed to them in this miracle. They'll praise him. They'll be in awe of him. They will return to him. But when this actually happens... 
when the earth shakes and the rocks split and the dead are raised, who is it that marvels at these things? Look at verse 54. Because it's not who you would expect. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Ezekiel said, when God begins to bring about the restoration, God's people will be in awe and they will see him as Lord. And here we have a bunch of Gentiles. And they're seeing these signs and wonders and they're saying of Jesus, truly this is the Son of God. What's Matthew doing? He's showing you and me that the way that God is bringing about the fulfillment of his promises is bigger than anyone had thought. This redemption is better. This is broader than Israel expected. Jesus' death on the cross, the death of Messiah, is such a momentous event. It's not just Israel being reconciled. It's not just Israel being redeemed. This is bigger than the Exodus, as God said it would be. Even though it has all the markings of the Exodus with this earthquakes and rock splitting, this is better. Because this redemption is for the nations. Friends, Jesus is not just the Messiah of the Jews. He's our Messiah. He atones for our sins as well. This is why John exclaims in 1 John 2, 2, he's the propitiation for our sins, speaking of the Jewish people, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And by the whole world, he means all the nations, all the people, beginning with the centurion who stood in awe. All peoples. Friends, we are the centurion and those who are with him. That's us. And we see Christ fulfilling the scriptures. And if you have faith that he is the Christ, then you are seeing him as God. He is your Lord. Amen? Well, as the, the band comes up here, we're going we're gonna to take